Welcome to God Pods, Faith Conversations from Boston College's Church in the 21st Century Center. Hello, and welcome to God Pods. I'm Karen Kiefer. During this season of gratitude and giving, I thought it would be appropriate to begin with a quote from St. Francis of Assisi For it is in giving that we receive. Today, we're going to talk about finding God in words. Think about it. Writing is so much a part of people's faith journey. We all find a deep connection to God through words and through prayer. On this episode of God Pods, we want to develop this thought a little bit more with our guest, John Sweeney, and see how his writing life has helped him connect with God in a very powerful way. And maybe he can help us. Before I introduce John, let me tell you a little bit about him. John Sweeney is a scholar and author of 30 books, books on popular history, spirituality, poetry, mysticism, and a memoir, and most recently, some books for young fiction readers. Many of his books are about St. Francis of Assisi, and most recently, he has a new series, as I mentioned, of fiction for young readers. The first book was The Pope's Cat. And the second book that was just released, hot off the press, Margaret's Night in St. Peter's. John Sweeney's faith journey has included two decades spent as an involved evangelical, followed by two decades as an active Episcopalian. And on the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi in 2009, he was received into the Catholic Church. Today, he is a practicing Catholic who prays regularly with his wife, a congregational rabbi, John is the father of four children, and he lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He is also the publisher and editor-in-chief of Paraclete Press. We are so honored to have John on our GodPod episode today. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to be with you. Well, we're thrilled, and we just, we're going to get right to it, because we just can't wait to um, unpack your words and your projects. So before we really go forward. Let's take a look back. Um, can you walk us through like your writing journey, the early beginnings? Did, did, did you start writing when you were young? Uh, you know, it, it, uh, I, I just was chuckling just as you asked that because you immediately reminded me of, uh, I gave a talk to some kids at a Catholic school here in Milwaukee just a couple of weeks ago about the Pope's Cat series. And this is one of the things that the kids really wanted to explore. You know, kids are so curious about how how someone comes to do what they do uh, for a job or for a living. And I think a lot of kids enjoy writing and storytelling, and that's what I was talking about that day. So they all wanted to talk about this very thing. So I'm I'm sort of practiced in in remembering this from my childhood. And what I told them was that there were really only two things that I wanted to do when I was about 11, probably 10 or 11. I wanted to either be John Denver uh, or I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> uh, and so I took guitar lessons and I was really bad. Uh, uh, I, I sort of banged away on this guitar for a couple of years and ended up really only knowing three chords and uh, singing John Denver songs uh, and let it be, you know, really badly. Um, so I, I was joking with the kids. So that's why I became a writer because I couldn't really sing and play the guitar but I've, I've liked uh, telling stories. I've wanted to tell stories. I've enjoyed uh, research and words and kind of the craft of language since I was a kid. So 
it really is. It, it's something that I wanted to do from the earliest time, and and uh, I'm delighted that by the time I got to be about thirty, I was able to start you know writing professionally. Before that, I started working in publishing, you know, with the same kind of motivation. But then I got to start doing my own writing too. You know, we're dating ourselves because those kids are probably sitting there thinking, "Who's John Denver?" <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's true. But they they understood my story of about course. you know try, trying to learn to play the guitar, and I can still remember "Let It Be," you know, "Let It Be," "Let It Be," "Let It Be." I mean, like those were the three chords I knew. Um, but yeah, no, they they don't know who John Denver that is, uh, and maybe even the teachers who were standing there that day uh, so don't, have a, <laughs> yeah, don't they... have a whole lot of connection because I am over fifty now, so I, I have to remember I'm not the youngest one in the room anymore. Well, it's interesting that you were able to marry your love of history and words um, in, in your curiosity with your love of God, kind of putting that all together and really building a career out of that. It's, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm grateful every day uh, uh, for that. Um, there are days like, you know, everybody has these days when you really don't want to be doing the project you're doing, the thing that's on your desk or where the meeting you have to go to. And whenever I really do think, I mean, I've got a lot of, you know, spiritual problems in my life, but I think gratitude on this point is something I'm pretty good at reminding myself that whenever I have those moments of not wanting to go to that meeting or really not liking the project on my desk this week, I remind myself that I am so grateful I get to do what I do. I mean, I love the fact that I get to work with words and I get to work with books and I get to uh, work with history and theology and I get to communicate my love of God in those ways um, and get to do that for my work, not just, you know, in the evenings or in my spare time. I'm very grateful for that. And also, you just, I know how much you love bookstores, you know, so it's another, another church, you know, in a beautiful way. Well, yeah, and, and you know that probably because we're connected on social media, and I know I'm a little obnoxious probably on that point. No, but it's, it's <laughs> wonderful. But it's because it's true. I do love uh, bookstores almost in an old-fashioned sort of way, and I love old books as well as new books. Uh, well, one of the things I'm sort of passionate about is that people, even people who read a lot, uh, God bless us all who still read books. I wish there were more of us, but even those who read a lot often don't sort of realize or remember that so many of the great books and things to read are books that were not published in the last few years. And so mm -hmm. I, I like reminding people of the great things of the past as well. Yeah, and you do that so well on social media. For those that want to follow John Sweeney on social media, do that. Um, you talk about your projects and, and of course, your writing, and, and we know that you are very prolific, but can you share with us your process and how often do you write, John? And, and is there, a, you know, a particular, um, you know, day or time of day that you write or do you, do you have a routine or does it just, do you fit it in when you can fit it in and, and by God's grace, you're able to actually, you know, type words on the, in the computer? I, I work at writing every day, but I don't have a routine in the sense that you sometimes hear about a writer who, uh, you know, uh, sits, sits at her desk at 6 a.m. and writes until 9 a.m. and then at 9 a.m. does something until lunchtime and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, I've, I've never had that kind of a, a schedule. Frankly, I've never 
been able to keep that kind of a schedule because I've always had another job in addition to my writing. So my writing has to fit in the free times that I have. But as a serious writer who does a lot of writing, I, I fit in a lot of time. And so the best answer I have in terms of what is my discipline is that I do a lot of writing early in the morning. And I've done that for 20 years probably because uh, I, I sleep probably a little bit less than other people. I'm just maybe, I don't know, graced with not having to sleep quite as much as other people. And also, since I started having children 25 years ago, my joke has always been that I haven't slept very well since I had my first child 25 years ago. <laughs> and, it, and it's not just a joke. I, I sort of sleep a little bit lightly because if I hear something at right. night in a, in a kid's room, I'm the one who gets up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife uh, stays in bed, God bless her, and I wish I could some, some nights. But You're I a wake good up man, and John. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so as a result of those couple of factors, I suppose, I do a lot of writing, you know, from 5 in the morning until 7.30 when the house really gets going. Uh, and then I do writing at various other times during the day. But I think I think also part of my discipline, I'm always working on two or three projects at once. And I do a lot of the kind of writing I do, most of the writing I do, requires a lot of reading also. And so I think I think I've developed some good disciplines to sort of percolate ideas in my mind at times when I'm not sitting at my computer and actually putting words into pixels, you know, so I will do some reading. And then when I go for a bike ride or when I go to pick up my daughter at school or whatever, I, I, I've developed an ability to sort of percolate it and think about it and mm-hmm. digest it so that then maybe the following morning when I sit down at my desk to do some serious writing, I'm able to sort of put out a few pages because I've kind of worked it through. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the disciplines, I guess, that I've developed over the years. When when you think back in all the books that you've written, was there is there one that stands out as being like the most the the toughest to deliver? You know, it just didn't come easy at all. Well, well, yes, and it, it's a book that isn't published yet. Uh, <laughs> so, but but it's a book that I delivered the manuscript a couple of months ago. Uh, I believe it's going to be published a year from right now by okay. Loyola Press, and it's a biography of St. Peter Faber. Ah. And, and the reason why it was the hardest for me to deliver, I think, I mean, unless I'm uh, not remembering something before that, but it was really tough to deliver because it was, even though it was, even though it's um, a popular uh, historical uh, story. Uh, from the general time period that I've done a lot of work in, it was outside my wheelhouse in a lot of ways. I had never spent a lot of time with the, with, uh, with a Jesuit. I had never spent a lot of time with Ignatian material. And I sort of, I sort of wrote the book on a dare. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've done many, many books on Francis of Assisi. And a few years ago, when one of those was published, um, I think it was when St. Francis saved the church. I sent a copy, you know, you always send copies to friends and colleagues, and I sent one to a buddy of mine uh, who at the time was at Loyola University in Chicago, and he's now at Georgetown. And he wrote me back about a week later and said, I'm really enjoying the book, and it's terrific, but, you know, come on already. Like, enough with Francis of Assisi. you got to take on, you got to do something on one of our saints. 
And I said, well, who? Who do you think I should do something on? And he said, well, you know, there really isn't a good popular book on St. Peter Faber. Mm. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you do something on his? So I, so I really sort of took it as a dare. And I said, all right, fine, I will. Um, and then I, you know, I pitched it to, you know, a Jesuit publisher. And then I, they said, that sounds great. And so as a result, it was kind of outside my wheelhouse. I had to do a lot of uh, background uh, sort of research and uh, reading and thinking and and then I just the structuring of it took me a lot of time, uh, you know, longer than usual for those various reasons. But, but, but it's not even out yet. So we'll see. We'll see what people think of it a year from now. Well, I, I my, my next question was going to be, you know, how have you seen God working in your writing projects? But I, I think you you just answered that. God was working in all that, you know, well, making the and connection. Honestly, and. I, I, uh, honestly, I, I took that as God, which is why I, I mean, I, I suppose I answered your question uh-huh. in kind of a secular way by saying I sort of took the dare. But I do take that as God. I mean, I yes. take that as as a word, you know, that I should listen to. Um, and I, I do that in my life in a way that maybe is a little bit old fashioned. I mean, like, for instance, uh, friends of mine who work in in nonprofits or in parishes uh, or in similar kinds of work, I'm often asking them to remember that it's a good idea to uh, sometimes, you know, kindly to ask people to give rather than assuming that they'll give if they want to give. Because if someone asks me to give, I give. I mean, I in the sense that I take that also as sort of a word from God that it's yes. something that I'm supposed to do. So mm-hmm. if my parish if my parish just simply expects me to put, you know, the envelope in the plate every now and then because I've committed to certain giving, that's good, and we need to do that kind of giving. But I actually really like it when when uh, someone will say to me, you know, there's a special thing happening right now, and I thought you might care about this, and I'm reaching out to you to see if you can help. If I hear that from people, and I hardly ever hear that from people, but if I do, I respond because I feel like, that's something from God. I'm supposed to do something about that. So in the same sense, yes, I, I, I took it as a dare from my, my Jesuit academic friend, but I also took it, I think, as sort of a word from God as to something that I was supposed to pay attention to. Let's stay on that course, because um, we all know that God pushes us out of our comfort zone. And with our faith, we, we leap. And so I was wondering if you could share with us how and why you decided to leap um, into the world of, uh, you know, chapter books for children and young readers, because this is the first time you've done anything like that. Yes. Well, yeah, I'll I'll have to think about how to answer that. And there's probably like three or four different angles. I often find that, you know, there's not one clear answer, but there's Mm -hmm. several. One one uh, one reason is sort of a professional reason, which is that I've been publishing really good children's books by other people for a long time now. I mean, for more than 20 years. And it's some of the publishing that I've really just enjoyed the most of all. Um, uh, working with an interesting manuscript and then finding an illustrator and then coming up with a design and marketing it to more than just the small targeted audience, but reaching a bigger audience and getting kids excited, but yet also speaking to parents and educators. And I've always loved that. So Mm. even though I had never done any of that kind of work, I've always enjoyed that kind of publishing as an editor and as a book publisher. 
So that's one reason. Um, another reason is that I really began to feel a passion for wanting, and I don't really quite know why, but wanting kids to understand uh, who the Pope is and what the papacy is and what a Pope does and what, and, and then even more specific than that, um, what is Rome all about? What's Vatican City? It, it all feels so sort of foreign and mysterious yeah. to uh, most people, period, let alone to kids. And particularly, you know, kids whose minds are fascinated by werewolves and, you know, fairy tales and um, wizards and Harry Potter and Robin Hood and all sorts of things that, that sort of equally have mystery and then get opened up in books for them. I thought, why, why does anybody ever do that for the Pope, for, particularly for, uh, for Catholic kids? So, mm-hmm. so that, 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 for whatever reason, became kind of a, a, a passion of mine, something that I wanted to do. And, and then I really love cats. So, you know, the series that you're referring to is a series about a cat and about the Pope and a cat. Um, I really love cats, and um, I love spending time with them, and I don't currently have one, even though I always have in the past, because I have a dog who would probably eat a cat. Um, (laughs) And and I have a wife who's nervous about cats making people allergic because we have people coming in and out of our home all the time. Um, And then I think the final uh, motivation for me was that um, my wife and I, about a year and a half ago, went through a process of of becoming foster parents and then adoptive parents of a child. And so I started to really think and feel a lot about issues of vulnerability with children. Mm. And I wanted to um, find a way to talk about that. And, and I am never going to write a book about, you know, parenting. I, I am no expert to give advice on, on parenting or anything like that. But I thought, well, maybe I could do it through fiction. So I think all of those are reasons, uh, uh, things that motivated me to create the Pope's Cat series. I mean, those are great reasons. And, uh, you know, you think also about the connection to uh, St. Francis of Assisi and his love of animals. And then, of course, Margaret, this the cat, this adopted cat, the, the Pope adopts Margaret, uh, the cat, from a shelter. And... Um, Talk to us about the process of the storyline and how that unfolded, because the book is beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. Of course, it's beautiful because of my talented illustrator, not because of me. But no, I think um, it's. I, I think you're the dynamic duo. <laughs> well, it's been so much fun working with Roy. Um, the The story just began with the opening scene. Um, in, you know, in, as I imagined it, which, which was, I, I wanted to portray not only what do popes do, what, what's their job, you know, what do they do, but I also wanted to show that a pope is a, is a human being, is a, you know, is a, is a man who might be kind of like people that a kid would meet elsewhere, even though he's invested with tremendous responsibility, but he's also in many ways just like us. So I, I, I wanted to show a pope who might enjoy, uh, leaving the Vatican early in the morning to just walk out on the streets of Rome and see the sunrise. And I, 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 mm. I still chuckle every time I think about that as the opening scene of the Pope's cat, just, you know, like as if a Pope could do that. I, I've heard, I think it's John the 23rd who I have heard did actually do that on occasion. Huh. But I was told that recently by a friend uh, who's, a, who's a scholar of these things. And I didn't know that when I was creating this 
opening scene of the Pope's cat. But um, the, the storyline just began with me imagining that scene. And then he goes walking out there by himself and uh, he's walking down the Via della Canciolonte and he, and he sees a cat in over in the corner and it. And that's when the vulnerability that I wanted to start communicating, the vulnerability comes right in there, this cat that's on the streets. And of course, since it's a cat, it's a cat that nevertheless, you know, has a lot of moxie and, and personality uh, and isn't going to really be uh, quickly um, portrayed or perceived as vulnerable because cats don't tend to do that. But he picks her up and puts her inside his cassock and then brings her into the into the Vatican. And then that gives me the opportunity to talk about the Swiss guards. I mean, what what kid could not like the Swiss guards? Exactly. Um, and, and things like that. So so it just began that simply. And then, you know, it's so much fun. Then you get to sort of sit at your desk and think, all right, well, what, what should Margaret what next? do next? Yeah. And, and what, what sort of trouble should she get into? And what is she going to see? And she's going to be amazed by it. And then what is she going to be afraid of? And you just kind of ask yourself those questions and then you follow the answers. How did you develop um, Margaret's character? I mean, you said it's a cat with moxie, but you were just probably well, thinking about how, she, how the cat, how Margaret would respond to the Pope and the world around <laughs> the Pope? Well, I, I, I guess, I mean, I feel like I know cats pretty well. I've had six or seven cats over a long, oh, wow. many, many, many years. Um, I've, I've lived with cats for decades, and so I feel like I know cats well, and I wanted to make Margaret just like people who know cats would know that a cat would be, uh, sleeping a lot, the way that she stretches, uh, the way that she eats, um, the way that she doesn't want to wake up in the morning those kinds of things. And so a lot of it is just wanting to be true to what a cat is like. And then I think in terms of how she would respond to things like uh, being taken into St. Peter's Basilica, um, then she starts to take on human characteristics. Mm-hmm. Or, or for instance, after the Pope takes her into St. Peter's uh, for a little tour, which is what happens in book two, um, the Pope is then called away on business because in my stories and in life, the Pope is often and frequently called away to go attend to some work. It's not as if he has a lot of free time. And so he's called away and then she's left alone or she's left in the care of someone that she doesn't really know. And then she's afraid. Suddenly she's afraid and the place feels very large and she wants to run into a corner and hide. So sometimes then she's taking on the characteristics of a child as opposed to a cat. So it's a combination of the two. And I definitely think the Pope's cat captures the spirit of Pope Francis, obviously, and is tending to, to the marginalized, which is just so beautiful. And I remember the first time I read the Pope's cat, um, I put it down and of course I hopped on social media and then I saw the story of um, young children actually going to animal shelters to read books to animals. And I remember sending yeah. it to you, John, because I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I could just picture so many kids, you know, even during the holiday season, going to these shelters and actually reading the Pope's cat to cats. Yes, yes, I love that. I, yeah, I still love that idea. I, I, I should I should go and do that. Too. Yes. I mean, not, now that you've reminded me of that. No, it's a fabulous idea. Um, and even just even just going to shelters and, and spending time. There are some kids. And some adults I know who will go to shelters to just hold cats and yes. dogs and animals that are Love in the shelters, them. even if they really can't 
uh, afford perhaps to bring one into their home or another one into their home. They just spend time with them. That's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Now, when you finished The Pope's Cat, were you thinking, okay, there's a there's more story here. There's another book here. How did that all happen? The, the when, when the when the first when the first story sort of came to me and came together and you know I got it onto paper and asked for some feedback and people were affirming that they thought it was good. Uh, before I approached a publisher with it, I thought about what the next story would be. Okay. And so when and so when I took it to the publisher, it was two stories because from the beginning I thought I don't think you create a character like this and just simply let it sit with one book. You have yeah. to at least have two. So yeah. that's what I asked uh, a, publish, a publisher to consider. And so it began, in that sense, as two books. Got it. Um, the, the Pope's Cat and then the Pope's Cat series, which then, as you mentioned in your intro, was followed up in the one that just came out called Margaret's Night in St. Peter's, A Christmas Story. So it started as those two. And then once, we, once the first one came out and we saw that the reaction was pretty good, the publisher then said, well, we should also just have a third and a fourth. So so there is a third and a oh, fourth wow. uh, as well. And then, you know, that could be the end. There's no, there hasn't been a further commitment from either me or the illustrator or the publisher for anything beyond four. But who knows? It might be fun if we go beyond four. We'll sort of play that by ear. So have you written the other two already? I have written the third one. And wow. the third one is, the third one has also been illustrated and it's been put together now uh, because these all are coming out relatively quickly. The third awesome. one is titled Margaret First Holy Week. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and so it comes out right around the 1st of February. Okay. Uh, which means it goes to the printer fairly soon. And then the fourth one I have not really written. I wrote the opening of the fourth one because I wanted to, you know, sort of get that started so that I could start thinking about how the story was going to come together, and also because when the third one is published, uh, the marketing people wanted the opening scene of the fourth one to put, you know, a little ad in the back of the third one. So that said, I have not written the fourth one fully yet, but the fourth one will be titled The Pope and Margaret Go to Assisi. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. So we come full circle. Well, yes, in a way, in terms of my interests, so yes, we, we come full circle. Uh, and it will be the first time that Margaret and the Pope uh, really leave the Vatican and go on a little road trip. Oh, that's just a, such a, a terrific uh, just storyline, you know. I just, I just want to read the next one. But let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about Margaret's Night in St. Peter's because it is a Christmas story. Um, and a great gift. I'm sorry I'm plugging, John, but I'm, I am um, for Christmas. And um, why don't we kind of just share a little bit about that story and not give away secrets, but, you know, just for the listeners so that they can just get a glimpse into this next book. Well, I all right, let's do. So I, I mentioned a little bit of it before, which yeah. was that the Pope takes Margaret on a tour of St. Peter's. And they, this is after, you know, an opening scene of, of Margaret needing to wake up and, uh, wake, and, and she lives in the Pope's apartments. And, and there are some members of the Roman Curia 
and and the Pope's staff who aren't really thrilled that Margaret is around because she's a she takes some of his time away from his work. A distraction. She gets she's a distraction and she gets in the way and sometimes she gets into mischief and sometimes uh, she uh, messes things up. She knocks things over or. Uh, I think it's in I think it's in book three. Yeah, it is. It's in book three uh, where she makes a mess on the floor uh, with uh, dirty footprints and things like that. So, so she she annoys some people, but the Pope adores her, and everyone has to uh, put up with her, even if they're a little annoyed by her because of the Pope's affection for her. But he decides that she really needs to see Saint. St. Peter's Basilica, so he takes her on this this little tour, and as I mentioned before, he gets called away, and she becomes scared. And so I don't, you're right, I don't want to give away too much, but my favorite part of Margaret's Night in St. Peter's is that when she becomes scared and she runs, she, anyone who's ever been to St. Peter's Basilica knows how enormous the, mm-hmm. the place is, yeah. and so she could run for a long time and still be in the building, and she she does run, and she starts to go towards uh, daylight. And there's not a whole lot of places where you'll see daylight in St. Peter's. So she's heading towards the entrance that the line of tourists or pilgrims is coming in. And so there are so many people who are on their way in that she's kind of frightened by all those people, too. And if you've ever been there and you can picture where I'm talking about, it's, it's quite near the entrance. And right near there is where Michelangelo's famous Pieta sculpture sits. And so she quickly then goes and hides behind it. Um, and this is where uh, the illustrator, Roy de Leon, is so incredible. Um, the realism with which he paints uh, the Pieta and little Margaret hiding behind it. And she spends a lot of time there. And then this is a way, this is where storytelling turns into teaching, because I do have a, you know, sort of a pedagogical purpose in these books, not just to entertain, but to teach some things. And so Margaret hears uh, tour guides coming by and explaining to people what, what that weird word, Pieta, means, you know, and, 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 what, and what this scene is all about. And so she learns a little bit of that. And then by the end of the book, um, she's not hiding anymore, and she is at midnight mass, and I won't give away everything, but... It's an opportunity for kids to learn not only about this incredible church, but the tradition and what's being discussed and what Christmas means and what uh, the pity or the passion is all about and how all of this kind of comes together. So that's, I, I, I don't know, is, 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 that, is that sort of telling yeah, the story without giving it away? Yes, and you know what I love, John, is that, you know, parents um, could actually buy this book and read it during Advent, you know, and a little bit every night to, to young kids. And, and, uh, and of course, young readers could read it on their own. But you were so correct in saying that Roy has just done a masterful job in the way he brought your words to life. And the illustrations are magnificent. I'm just curious. So did you know Roy before you started working on this series? And I know he, it says in the back of the book, like he lives in Seattle. You know, how, how did that friendship connection all develop? And I know God was working in that, too. I did know Roy because um, I was involved in publishing. He's only done one book before, and it was not a children's book. It was, it's a book for adults called Praying with the Body. 
And it was at least 10 years ago, maybe even more wow. than 10 years ago, when that book came out and I was involved in publishing that book. So I knew Roy from that context. And then we had been together maybe just on one or two occasions um, at a conference or something. I went to one of his retreats one time when he was doing a retreat on the subject of his earlier book, Praying with the Body. And when, when he saw, I think it was that he saw me mention on social media that I was working on a children's project and that I was uh, having so much fun doing it. And I think I mentioned that I, you know, that we're going to need to find an illustrator. He sent me a note and he said, you know, it's always been a dream of mine to illustrate a children's book. You know, I'm a graphic designer and I've always wanted to do a children's uh, book. Uh, is it something that we could talk about? And I said, of course. And then when he sent in sort of his samples of how he would uh, characterize Margaret and, and the Pope, it was it was just a no brainer. He was right. he was he was made for this job. Exactly. So, wow. Yeah, that, that that was easy. He's such a lovely guy. He's, he's a Benedict Noblate. Uh, he's retired from his graphic designer work, and so this is this is almost in a way like the work of his retirement. And I think he's having a lot of fun, but I think he's also working really hard. I I, I hope I'm not working him too hard, but, uh, but he but, he gets a he gets a breather in between each book of a couple of months anyway. But the the attention to detail is just extraordinary and you know we are going to post on our um site c21engage.org um we'll have a page there and not only will it share um a little bit more about you and about your other books but also about the pope's cat and margaret's night and saint peter's and also there's a couple of videos out there and we want to be able to show some of the listeners just the beauty and how magnificent um, some of these illustrations are, and that, like I said, they they just bring bring your words to life. Not that your words aren't aren't enough, but it, it must be so um, gratifying as an author, John, to find someone that um, that you work so well with, and that you you actually can see your words on a page, and then see how they affect the the beautiful gift and talent that lives within inside that illustrator. Yeah, it, it has been. And and one of the reasons why I say that Roy's been working really hard is because the attention to detail uh, is really a, you know, a historical, uh, real detail in the sense that many illustrators of a children's book are allowed to just, you know, create what the scene in the room would be or the, exactly. you know, if, if I was writing about a cat and a cat gets into trouble um, the illustrator might be writing about relatively ordinary things, or I mean, illustrating a sort of relatively ordinary scene or a scene that doesn't require research. But Roy has had to do all kinds of research. I mean, I've been talking about, for instance, in Margaret's Night in St. Peter's, very specific things in St. Peter's, and it's not as if he could just create them in however he wanted to imagine them. He's had to do a lot of research, and and that takes a lot of time. And it there's does. a lot of illustrators who who aren't willing to do that kind of work because it takes a lot of time. But Roy's been great. Yeah. Well, once you get to the end of the, the Pope's Cat, and then, you know, the, the reader can learn more about um, Margaret's Night at St. Peter's. And then when, once you finish that book, they, can, they, they know that there's two other ones, um, you know, coming out. So I think that's going to keep everyone going for, for a while, especially you and especially Roy. Um, let's just go back for a minute to some of the other books that you've released, like in the last year or two. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Like I know the uh, Phyllis Tickle, that was hugely popular. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, so, so well, Phyllis Tickle was a, a friend of mine. She died in September of 2015. Um, Phyllis was the founding editor in religion at Publishers Weekly, and she was a, a commentator on religion in the media on, you know, major television networks and for newspaper reporters. And she was an author of many, many books herself, and she was the creator of a series of liturgical prayer manuals called the Divine Hours. So, I mean, those are just some of the things that she did over a very long career of um, 55 years of writing and teaching and and uh, talking about religion and faith. She was a friend of mine, and uh, we had worked together uh, on many projects and sat on a couple of boards together, and we wrote a book together at one point. So when she found out that she was dying, um, she established a literary trust, and that was um, three people, and I was one of them. And one of the first things that the literary trust uh, uh, decided um, when we were meeting was that someone should write Phyllis's biography. And oh. I sort of volunteered, and it was a great honor to work on that for mm. um, um, the better part of a couple of years. And then, uh, as you say, it came out, and it was really well received. So, yeah, that, that was a big deal. That was a, a project that I loved doing, and I probably loved even more uh, talking about it and, and going around and uh, addressing various groups because it allowed me to sort of hang out with Phyllis a little bit longer. Exactly. So that was, that, was a big, that was a big project. Mm-hmm. Uh, another really fun one that came out a year ago that I've been spending a lot of uh, uh, time on, I guess, um, well, in various ways, is, is a book that I, that I collaborated. Like, the Phyllis book was almost a collaboration, too, but th- I also collaborated with Mark Burroughs, who's a poet and a scholar of medieval theology, uh, translator from, of Rilke from German, uh, who actually teaches in Germany right now. And he and I did a project together of taking the words of Meister Eckhart and turning them into verse and presenting them, sort of revoicing Meister Eckhart in a way that uh, presents his his sort of crystallized ideas as poems. And it's been quite popular and really mm-hmm. well-received, and it's been so much fun to talk about this book, too, and spend more wow. time with this one. It's a book called Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart. And it came, it came out about a year ago, and then Mark and I also uh, have been working on a sort of a follow-up to that. So in addition to spending a lot of time with uh, the Pope and the Pope's cat, I spent a lot of time with Phyllis Tickle, and I spent a lot of time with Meister Eckhart. <laughs> That's mm. kind of a, an example of the sorts of things that have been uh, taking up my writing energy. And I, I love the way you say spend time with. You know, it just, the, 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 you give birth to these these books and these ideas, and then they live on. And there's such a beauty and, and such a gift in all that. It's, uh, it's, it's how I feel about it. I mean, uh, mm, I, mean I, I know you do plenty of, plenty of writing yourself, you know. I mean, when you sit down and uh, you're sort of uh, with a book and you're thinking about a project or you're at your computer and you're starting to write some paragraphs or whatever, it, 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 particularly when you're writing in the field of, of faith and spirituality and religion and so on. It really is like spending time with, with your subject. And I love that. I mean, and, and, and even, even if I was, even if I was writing a biography of, you know, Emily Dickinson or something, I'm sure the biographer 
of a you know non-religious sort of topic or subject feels the same way. You're spending time with your subject, and if you love your subject, um, then it's time really well spent. And if you don't love your subject, you probably end up loving your subject by the time you're done anyway, right. because you spend so much time doing it. Right. Speaking of time, so you have four children. If you wouldn't mind just giving us kind of how old they all are, and then um, your travel and your projects. How, how do you do it all, John? And, and heading up Paraclete Press, which is just an amazing publishing company, and uh, the projects that, that come out of Paraclete Press are just beautiful, and, and um, there's a lot going on. Um, how do you manage it all? Um, I, you know, I, I never feel like I'm managing it all. I just feel <laughs> You're like juggling. It all, it, I just feel like it's all sort of an organic thing and it all works. I mean, mm -hmm. you, I mean, you have to, you have to make it work. I mean, I do things like, um, you know, close the computer at about 8.30 PM and stop looking at stuff for the last uh, couple of hours before going to bed. I mean, that doesn't sound like much perhaps, but that's kind of a big deal to stop to stop looking and stop thinking about things for the last couple of hours, at least of the day. So I try and do that. Um, I also, you know, stop what I'm doing at many points throughout the day. I mentioned earlier, I think going to pick up my daughter at school, you know, I mean, I take my, take my daughter to school in the morning and I pick her up at three o'clock and we just walk home and on the sidewalk and it takes 20 minutes and, you know, I don't worry about that time or, and I don't answer the phone and, you know, so you kind of have to just set times aside and, and fit everything in the way it needs to fit in. But to answer the question about my children, I have four kids. Two of them are grown uh, adults who are often, often living their own lives. One is 25 and lives in Chicago, went to DePaul university, lives in Chicago, lives and works in sort of a, a cool neighborhood in Chicago. And then I have a son who's a Boston University graduate. Sorry, not Boston College, but Boston <laughs> University. And uh, he lives in Manhattan and has a job that he loves and is very, very busy. And then I have a 16-year-old. Um, that's the child who I mentioned that we adopted about 18 months ago. And then I have a second grader. Uh, so three, three girls and a boy, um, life is very rich and very full and yeah, it keeps me busy. And then I have a wife. <laughs> my, uh, in fact, my, my, my wife is uh, a couple hours from now about to fly to Israel. So, oh, wow. uh, uh, so I'm single parenting this week. So you can say a prayer for me. We will, we will most certainly do that. So as we close, I'm thinking about Advent, obviously, and uh, was wondering if you had a hope, a hope to share for the Advent season. Oh, boy. I wouldn't even know where to start, mm, Karen. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm, to be honest, I, I want to get through tomorrow first. You know, tomorrow uh, is the election, and I suppose by the time people listen to this, it won't it'll be past the election, but I'm hoping that once we are that we will have started to find some healing. Uh, we're, we're all in such different poles, uh, separate poles uh, from each other on so many issues. And there's so much uh, anger, um, uh, lack of kindness and love. Mm -hmm. And um, right. th that's what I think most about right now. And um, once we get past that, and I hope uh, we get past it in a in a way that's uh, moving forward and not creating more tension. That um, my wish for Advent would be to continue. There's so much healing I think that has to happen um, 
in our communities and in our relationships with each other. Um, I know that in our context here in Milwaukee, we're trying to do it in some of the most basic ways. I mean, we're trying to just have more people into our home and we're trying to meet people that we have to go out of our way to meet because people, people keep to themselves and mm-hmm. we, we, you know, we don't cross paths the way that we used to. It's, it's just too easy to, to, to be sort of satisfied in your own assumptions or in your own life and to not, not meet your neighbors, let alone love them in any way. So, uh, it's, it's some of the kind of work in a grassroots way that, uh, my wife and I and some people in our community are really trying to do here. And that those are the kinds of wishes that I have. And that's the kind of thing that's on my heart these days. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. Well, again, I, I think it's only appropriate that we first close with a big thank you to you for your time and your energy and your gifts and all that you do. And then also um, close with the words of St. Francis of Assisi again, um, knowing that for it is in giving that we receive. And thanks for, for giving to us and to so many. And uh, we, are, we happily receive you, John. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And it's, it's been great fun talking about all these things. I hope we can do it again sometime. I hope so as well. And I just hope that our listeners, um, you know, can enjoy and, and take your, your wisdom and your grace and, and carry it into their lives, especially uh, as the Advent season approaches. Take care, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. All righty. For more Catholic faith resources, follow us at bc.edu backslash c21 or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.